This is the Future of Work Limited Series Podcast, brought to you by Andrew R. Timming, Professor of Human Resource Management at RMIT University. This podcast series brings together world-leading experts and thinkers to discuss employment trends and the future of the labor market. You can follow me on Twitter at TimmingLab. That's T-I-M-M-I-N-G-L-A-B. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the discussion. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm sitting down with Professor Andrew Norton. Andrew Norton is professor in the practice of higher education policy at the Center for Social Research and Methods at the Australian National University. He was previously the higher education program director at the Grattan Institute. Mr. Norton is the author or co-author of many articles, reports, and other publications on higher education topics. He also writes a blog on higher education issues. That's andrewnorton.net.au. In 2013 to 2014, he was the co-author of a government commission review of the demand-driven student funding system. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, I guess um, maybe the, the, the best place to start here is, um, you know, what's, what's wrong with universities today? What are the big issues that are wrong with universities today? And how can we solve those issues moving forward into the future? Well, I guess the from the university perspective, the main thing that's wrong right now is that they're in a financial crisis uh, triggered by the travel ban on international students. And what international students have done is essentially finance the research activities of universities over the last 20 years. There's been a huge research boom uh, in Australian higher education institutions. And this is really you know, not satisfied, but met much more of the demand within the higher education sector to do research. And so if that money is not there, it requires a very considerable scaling back of total research output. And I would suggest a rethink of many other aspects of the way higher education operates, particularly around how university academic staff are employed and what their functions are. So if Let's go, go on. Could you explain to the listeners how it is that international students would fund research? Because I think most people might assume that research at universities is funded by research councils at a national level. How does the actual money that international students pay feed into research productivity in universities? Well, obviously there is government research funding, but that's you know less than $4 billion. And if we look at what the Australian Bureau of Statistics says universities spend on research, it's more like $12 billion. So you've really got two-thirds of the spending that need to be explained that aren't coming from government. Now, there are various other sources other than government, industry and donations and all those kinds of things. But my estimates are that probably between a quarter and a third of all that research spending couldn't have been financed any other way than profits on international students. And I've cross-checked or reality-checked that kind of analysis with a, a study that Deloitte Access Economics did uh, recently of teaching costs. And it really suggests that in, you know, particularly in the 
the group of eight or sandstone universities, they're taking courses that maybe cost them, you know, fifteen thousand dollars a year to teach per student, and then selling them for forty thousand dollars plus per year. And so this is generating huge profits above the costs of teaching. And that is being used to support research and, and some other things. Like I think the, you know, until recently, every time you went to a campus, it was also a building site. And so there's been a lot of, I think, uh, new buildings built on the profits of international students. I'm wondering why no one was able to see this coming when in fact, everyone was able to see this coming. And when I say that I, I'm talking myself as a faculty member, everyone knew for, for years, maybe even for um, over a decade, that this over-reliance on international students and particularly on Chinese students was uh, putting your eggs in one basket and a sort of recipe um, for a disaster that was just waiting to happen. Where, where was the, the flaw here? You know, who's at fault for, for that short-sightedness and not being able to see what was right in front of everyone's face? Uh in some ways, I'm a, a little bit more sympathetic to the people who made the decisions to take so many Chinese students. Like, even though there were obvious risks and, you know, being a media commentator on higher education, I've had literally dozens of calls about over-reliance on international students and Chinese students in particular. So it's been a live issue for a long time. Yeah. On the other hand, even if the universities knew this couldn't last forever, uh, in the meantime, it could generate billions of dollars of additional revenue they couldn't get otherwise. And so you could argue this was not crazy risk-taking. And in the end, what killed it was what we would regard as an outlier risk, you know, a total stoppage of all international inbound travel. Like we had lots of scenarios like, you know, conflict with China or you know, crimes against Indian students, which caused that market to go downhill 10 years ago, or changing visa rules in Australia. There were so many scenarios uh, that said this would decline, but no one picked a total blockage. And therefore, I think the this the scenario that eventuated was probably regarded as so unlikely that it shouldn't have been in the, the planning scenarios, even though they should have had some plans for what do we do if our international revenue declines by some non-trivial percent. Yeah, and it was a non-trivial percent in Australian universities. Is it maybe, I don't know, what maybe about 30% of the revenue comes from internationals? Uh, so the last year we got full figures was 2019. It was 27% yeah. then, but, but much higher, 40% or more at some institutions that were particularly reliant. Mm. Do you think that the... Um, the travel ban, the full travel ban implemented by the Australian government um, resulted in a sort of competitive advantage for English-speaking universities in places like the UK or Canada or the US? Uh, in terms of people going elsewhere? Yeah, yeah. If you can't come to Australia, then maybe you go get a master's at uh, a British university. There's been a bit of mixed evidence on that. So the trouble with our competitors, particularly Britain and the US, you might be allowed to come, but you've got a very high risk of getting COVID yeah. <laughs> and, all, and all sorts of other political and social problems in the United States as well. So, you know, if you read the global higher ed media, you know, for various reasons, COVID has pushed all the Anglosphere universities into some kind of crisis. Mm. Uh, you know, in the US and the UK, huge problems because they have a much more residential mode of, a, of uh, education than we do. 
and therefore trying to manage this you know congregation of young people in one spot has been you know a nightmare which Australian universities have had to deal with on a much much lower scale because we are basically a commuter campus system mm. and so no one is doing well out of this situation and guess the other question is who is going to decline the most is sort of what's going to driving some of the worries about rankings and things like that i know it's a bit of a, a crystal ball question and you don't have a crystal ball in front of you but what what do you think is the most likely um trajectory for this year are we going to see a a gradual reintroduction of international students are we going to see a, a flood of them there's two aspects to this. One is what is the willingness of international students to start their studies online? And look, one of the reasons why uh, a number of the universities, particularly the group of eights, revised down their estimates of losses, which they made earlier in the year, was because the, the willingness of Chinese study, students to study online was much greater than they expected. Mm. But I think we can assume that they were doing this on the assumption they'll be able to come to Australia reasonably soon. And mm. let's, let's not waste a semester because of this, uh, but I'll get there soon. Whereas maybe, you know, the longer the travel ban looks like lasting, uh, the more reluctant Chinese students might say, well, what is the point in paying a premium fee when all I'm doing is sitting in my bedroom back in Shanghai or something and not really getting that, social and cultural experience of studying in a, in a foreign city. So I think that's kind of one of the more immediate concerns we've got. I guess the yeah. more optimistic scenario is that you start to see some non-trivial return of international students in second semester this year. But even then, I'd have to say a lot of question marks around it. You know, will international travel be allowed? We have to have the vaccine first can't imagine they'll be allowed to use quarantine on any scale until we've got back uh, all the Australians who want to return. And that's still a massive logistical exercise. So it could be that we're waiting till 2022 before we get a, a major return of international students, which is going to cause uh, another series of rounds of retrenchments at campuses you know, around Australia. Do you think that there's a silver lining here with what's happened in terms of um, forcing universities to innovate and gain efficiencies in their operations that otherwise they wouldn't do had the, the good times kept rolling. So there is this argument more broadly in you know, economics that you know, even though recessions are terrible, they do have one upside, which is that businesses do everything they can to become efficient and you know, save money and survive. And that means they're much more productive on the way out once the, the recession is over. And so I guess be fingers crossed that when universities have been making their savings, they have been focusing on things which you know, are of borderline value or borderline or not very productive anyway. The worry would be that what's happening instead is not that we're doing it that way. It is that we're basically looking at the employment contracts of the staff. And if they're on some short-term contract, we can get rid of them quite easily, whether, whether we should or not. Whereas if they're on a permanent contract where it's harder to get rid of them, we keep them even if they're actually at the end of their careers or in an area that there's no longer a university priority. And so that will be the negative scenario that in some ways you lose the people who are your future and keep the people who are your past. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. You mentioned um, earlier at the beginning of this interview that there may be some 
transformations required in terms of the roles within universities. Uh, how do you see that playing out in terms of being able to adapt to the new environment? So one of the big issues here is the nature of academic employment. So if we take a, you know, the whole system back 30 years, uh, the main funding for universities was something called a block grant for, for universities. And that funded both research and teaching. And universities typically hired people on a, academics on a teaching and research basis. This idea that they may do 40% of 20% other activities. But domestically over time, what's happened is that research and teaching have been put on two different funding tracks with completely unrelated criteria. And so the funding base that supports teaching research employment has been disintegrating. In my view, it's what it been propped up a bit uh, by the, the international student profits, but enable the more staff to have a research component to their work. But once that goes, we're left with this teaching research model just not being viable on its historical scale. So there has been a trend towards specialisation anyway, but if you look at the people who've got ongoing employment at universities, the, the largest single group is still the, the teaching and research academic. And so the question is, if you have to specialise, how should you do it? A lot of the teaching specialisation is in casual employment. And that can be very exploitative for the people involved. Uh, not much evidence it's bad for the students, but it's certainly not a great employment model. And then if you are going to have, you know, full-time teaching only career staff, who should they be? And kind of the expectation, I think, is that they'll be sort of like the people we already employ, people who have PhDs, essentially want research as their main goal, have better do some teaching on the side. Whereas I would suggest that particularly in the more professionally orientated courses, that's probably not the kind of person that universities are looking for. They'd actually want someone who has real professional experience and that will someone who can actually help the students acquire the professional skills they need to succeed uh, once they leave university. Mm. And so this could be a very rude shock for the many thousands of people who have been labouring away at PhDs in Australia over the last decade and with some hope of eventually securing academic employment. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the problems with the university system as it exists today is that there are clear opportunities for advancement and promotion via research, um, but most staff would think that teaching performance is not necessarily rewarded in the way that it should. Would you agree with that assessment? I agree with that. So I did do a bit of a report on this maybe six, seven years ago, so it's a bit outdated. But what we found that over time was there had been one improvement, which was that uh, in the old days, you could be a completely incompetent teacher and keep your job. Whereas now, typically, you need to at least meet some minimum threshold of teaching quality to keep your job. So the promotion might come based on your research, but you have to have at least some minimum standard of teaching behind that. So that is an improvement. On the other hand, it's still clear that most academics regard research as their, their most important activity. And, you know, as you noted, basically the reward structures in the university are primarily around research. A few unis have created proper, you know, teaching track careers. I don't, I don't know how well they're going, but they've at least tried. But typically most promotion is based on research quality and most academics believe that you know, if the university says otherwise, that ultimately it's the, the, their research output that counts. Hmm. Yeah. 
What do you think of the uh, culture these days on universities in relation to freedom of speech? Is there really a cancel culture, as some people argue, or is that exaggerated? And how do you see that unfolding in the future? Look, it's very hard to get reliable metrics on this because I guess we do get a few high-profile cases of conflicts or you know people being cancelled. But in some ways, the insidious nature of you know threats to intellectual freedom are, are not the spectacular cases. It's all the people who decide, well, I want to advance my career. I'm just going to shut up about topics X, Y, and Z because they might land me in trouble. And for that reason, it's actually very, very different, difficult to measure how big a problem this actually is. I think the government, I think, is planning to include something in a student survey uh, about what their perceptions of it are. But so far as I know, there's no plans for an academic survey of to what extent they feel uh, that their opportunities to explore certain topics or discuss certain things in public are being curtailed by the, the campus environment. I'd have to say, like, it's always been the case that we observe social norms about what we should and shouldn't say. That's kind of not unusual. It's more a case of, you know, are there unreasonable restrictions on, you know, legitimate intellectual inquiry in areas that are politically sensitive? And I think probably most people think that's probably increased, but quantifying it is much, much harder to do. Yeah. yeah. So we've talked a bit about the structure of the university and various shortcomings associated with that structure and where it might be heading um, in the future. Um, but for the second half of the podcast, I'd like to focus specifically on um, the trajectory of skills development for students. So um, I guess maybe the first question is, uh, are universities actually um, meeting their responsibilities to employers, to society, in terms of imparting the skills that are needed um, to be, to be a functioning, you know, successful member of society? So I think probably mixed evidence on this. So the, the government has been very interested in this topic for quite a while. So they've done a, an employer satisfaction survey. Unfortunately, it's great flaw is that the employers are nominated by the students themselves. And so <laughs> there's presumably significant selection bias in which employers are asked, but nevertheless, that shows generally they're satisfied. There are other things that have become much more prominent, which I think are probably good, which is this idea of work integrated learning. So some unis have the ambition that everyone does it. It's certainly a lot more prevalent than it used to be. And I think this is probably useful for the students in getting a much more realistic idea of how the workplace actually operates. And also there's evidence that doing this actually improves your employment prospects both because employers want to see you've got relevant experience and in some cases the employer actually did hire you while you're a student and therefore is you know more confident you're a fit with the business than they would be if you just sent in your resume along with several thousand other people so i think the system is evolving towards that but i guess one big caveat here is that universities are not the vocational education system they do have other purposes and therefore i think there's always going to be an element of, of university life which is resistant to becoming vocational and too dominated by the requirements of, of the workplace. Yeah. Is there evidence that work integrated learning programs actually do lead to improved outcomes for employers? 
and for and for students as well in terms of their success in the labor market or is that something that hasn't actually been looked at because it's a sort of newer phenomenon uh there is actually older evidence which shows that people who had done this kind of work had much higher rates of employment than those who hadn't i guess the difficulty in drawing too much from that is that once almost everyone has some work integrated learning you're not special anymore. Mm. It's kind of like the problem with getting a degree in the first place that, you know, wind back 40 years, not many people had a degree. Therefore, if you did, you're marked out as, you know, someone possibly having quite distinctive, important skills. Whereas now 40% of the cohorts getting a degree, you're not so distinctive anymore. And so I guess this is a question about whether this scales up or not. But it's hard to see that there's going to be a general downside from this. And so I said, I wouldn't be sceptical about doing it. I'd just be sceptical about how transformational it will be that ultimately the number of jobs out there is primarily driven by the state of the labour market, you know, over which universities have pretty minimal control. Hmm. What about the disciplines that students are choosing or perhaps more importantly, not choosing to study based on what they perceive will make them employable? Do you see... Uh, is there any evidence, for example, that a degree in the arts or humanities makes an employee less productive than uh, any other degree? Uh, it definitely makes them less likely to get a, a professional managerial job. Look, my, my explanation of what's going on here is that for a lot of professions, you can only have one or two qualifications to get in, but there are a number of professions which will take anyone who seems pretty bright, anyone with a degree. And basically, people doing more general degrees like arts and science are competing in those jobs, like, for example, public service, um, who often take a wide range of, of applicants. The difficulty is that someone who's got a more vocational degree like business or engineering can also apply for those general jobs. And therefore, those jobs, in some ways, the most competitive in the labour market. And that means it's harder for people with these generalist degrees to actually get, get a job that's likely to use their skills. The actual levels of total unemployment are quite low, but getting a job that utilizes the kinds of skills you might have acquired at university is more challenging for people with more general degrees. So what would you recommend if you had a, a son or a daughter or a niece or nephew or whatever your situation is, would you tell them to, to study humanities or would you tell them to avoid that and study something a bit more practical? Uh, or I'd suggest they do a double degree. So they've got something, yeah. basically most of the research that you know, I've seen suggests that people largely follow their interests. And so I'm not going to advise someone to do something in which they're not interested. They won't maintain the motivation to complete a three-year degree, let alone a 40-year career uh, mm -hmm. based on that. And therefore, it has to be related to their interests. But what I would do say, well, given you've got you know, interests X, Y, and Z, you know, what are the courses and occupations which might engage those interests? And then from those courses and occupations, uh, which one is likely to be in your best, you know, medium-term interests. And that's how I would go about this. You know, look at the best options amongst those you realistically have. But, you know, if you want to do, you know, humanities, probably nothing will convince you to be an accountant. It's mm. total waste of time telling you to become an accountant just because the jobs are there. Yeah. Uh, do something that will interest you. you know, for example, law often engages similar skills to humanities, 
people say there are too many law graduates. Maybe that's true if focused on the legal profession alone. But the reality is that law graduates, compared to other people with kind of verbal humanities kinds of skills, tend to do better. It reduces your risks. And therefore, if you can get into that kind of course, I probably suggest doing that, at least as part of a double degree. Mm. Let's talk a bit about uh, recent um, government changes to um, university fundings in terms of what the government calls their jobs ready um, package. Could you just give an overview? Because I think some Australians will probably be um, familiar with how the funding changes have broken down, but our international audience might not be. So essentially what's happened is that since the mid-1990s, Australia's had a student charging system, which is essentially based on assumptions about your likely future earnings. So if you're doing law or medicine, the assumption is you'll earn a lot in the future and therefore you pay the highest uh, student charges. If you're going to do humanities or nursing, the assumption is you won't earn so much and you pay the lowest student charges. What the government has done is abolished that pricing model and replaced it with one which is designed to manipulate student behaviour in the directions the government wants. So, for example, humanities has gone from being in the cheapest category, which is six dollars $7,000 a year, to the most expensive, $14,500 a year. Uh, whereas teaching uh, and nursing have basically halved in cost because the government thinks that uh, we need more people in those occupations. And so this is a very radical shift in the logic of the funding system. And of course, the big question is, will it make any difference? And you know, I've been one of the ones saying this is probably not going to work. And it's for reasons which are linked to what I just said before about choosing a course, which is that if courses are driven by interests, uh, then the fact that something is slightly more or less expensive isn't really going to sway you. You think there's a certain irony in the fact that a conservative government has uh, implemented a policy that's decidedly unliberal in the sort of Adam Smithian sense of the word, in that, that it's a highly uh, interventionist? Yeah, I guess there's, there's one kind of market idea there, which is that price signals work. But otherwise, it is that, you know, the government knows best, which uh, is very unlikely from both a, a market perspective and a more general experience with government. And so I don't really know where this came from. Uh, it's sort of came from nowhere. There was no review or anything like that. There was no discussion paper, none of the normal preliminaries to walk before a major policy change. And so it kind of just came out of nowhere. Never had much of an argument behind it, but unfortunately we're stuck with it for a while and we're about to go through a fairly interesting experiment which will show whether it works or not. Mm. The One could argue, I think, the biggest loser uh, of this reform are the arts and humanities degrees, which um, apparently, if I'm to understand correctly, uh, have have they almost doubled in, in price compared than, to what... More, more than doubled. More than doubled. Do you think, you know, is this... How much of this is the government saying we need fewer arts and humanities degrees because they're not they don't have the right skills for the you know, 21st century economy or how much of it is, um, you know, let's punish the arts and humanities because they tend to be a bunch of Marxists that hate, you know, liberal governments. So that second argument has been advanced. I guess when we're looking at these explanations, I think, well, is all the evidence consistent with that? So we do have particularly backbench MPs taking swipes at humanities academics. 
Uh, on the other hand, uh, business, which is probably one of the more pro-liberal fields in the higher education system, also have the $14,500 uh, student contribution that, that arts has. Another complication is that what we're talking about here is just what the student pays, but there's also a government uh, contribution as well, which is low for humanities. But nevertheless, if you add their $1,100 government subsidy to their $14,500 student charge, that is still more than the humanities were getting under the old system. So from the university point of view, they actually will earn slightly more for a humanities student than they would have previously. On the other hand, due to various quirks of funding history, social science students were funded at a higher rate than humanities students, and they'll get less for that. So it's the package is so, to me, so confused and contradictory that kind of claims about motives become hard to make because there's usually an element of it that doesn't fit with the motive. Mm. But isn't it the case in the Australian university system that Australian students or domestic students don't pay fees up front like they would, for example, in America? No. So there's something called the Higher Education Loan Program known as HELP or HEXHELP for government subsidized students. It's effectively, except in a few narrow circumstances, students can defer the entire cost of their, their course and then they repay it through the tax system. Essentially, when the income exceeds 46000 Australian dollars a year, they start to repay their, their student loans. And the system actually protects them. So if your income falls below that threshold, you, you don't pay anything. And if your income stays below that threshold the rest of your life, it'll just be written off in the end. So it does have significant student protections. Because one of the, the ironies or problems of the humanities charge is that because they do less well in the labour market, even though the government's charging them more, it'll take the government a very long time to see any of this money because a lot of them will take decades uh, to repay. And to me, that's kind of one of the flaws of the current system and the strengths of the old system, which was that it tended to even out between the courses how much time it would take to repay your debt. Whereas now we're going to have you know, teachers and nurses you know, repaying in four or five years and arts graduates potentially taking 20 or 30 years to repay. And I, I just don't think that's good social policy. Yeah. You've been listening to Professor Andrew Norton from ANU. Andrew, just uh, to sort of wrap up this discussion, um, you know, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about the future of higher education and why? So the case for optimism is that there has been for decades uh, an expansion in the number of people who actually want to go to university. And this is, you know, this has ridden out many recessions and ups and downs. It seems to be profound cultural change. And if we think that is the case, and in Australia we know there's a, a big birth cohort coming through the system, that gives grounds for optimism on the domestic student front. There will be demand for it. On the other hand, I can see that there are very rocky times ahead financially if we don't have international students. And it does seem like universities, particularly in the US, uh, but to a lesser extent also in the UK and Australia, have been caught up in major cultural conflicts. Uh, we were alluding to this in some of the questions about academic freedom, this perception that woke culture is taking over universities, that there are big dividing lines in the way people vote between degree qualified and not. And that just introduces a new unpredictable element to the politics of higher education. It's not seen as the you know, undisputed good thing that it was in the past. 
and therefore universities have a more complex political environment to navigate. That's great. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day, mate. Thank you.